Well, good morning. You turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We'll continue working through this Olivet Discourse, as it has been called. Over the years, we'll be looking at verse 29 through the end of the chapter. To read with me. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? To give them food at their proper time. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, as we look into the word that you inspired this morning, we ask that you would make it clear, that you would illuminate it to us. We realize apart from your work of making your word speak to our hearts that we will waste our time this morning. So we ask that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. All for Jesus' sake. Amen. In his superb little book, A Brief History of Thought, philosopher Luke Ferry writes that because mankind is aware of their impending death, that a controlling question for all human thought has been this, how are we saved from death or delivered from death? Or how do we live today knowing that death is always there stalking us, you might say? He considers what it is to live the good life and it is to live free from worry and anxiety. He writes this, to live well, to live freely, capable of joy, generosity, and love, we must first and foremost conquer our fear, or more accurately, our fears of the irreversible. But here precisely is where religion and philosophy pull apart. And he goes on then to argue that there have been two major streams of how to deal with the question of the irreversible, 
the question of death, which haunts us all. And he says, whereas philosophers are those who doubt religion, religion primarily deals with this question by pointing to, in Christianity in particular, the eternal life, the resurrection and eternity, immortality. But philosophers doubt religion, and so they've developed different ways of handling this, and he uses his book to unpack those ways. And he writes this, all philosophies, however divergent they may sometimes be in answers they bring, promises an escape of primitive fears. They possess in common with religion the conviction that anguish prevents us from leading good lives. It stops us not only from being happy, but also from being free. The question becomes one of how to persuade humans to save themselves. Salvation must proceed not from an other, from some being supposedly transcendent, but, well and truly, from within. Philosophy wants us to get ourselves out of trouble by utilizing our own resources, by means of reason alone, with boldness and assurance. And this is what is meant, that to philosophize is to learn how to die. How about for you this morning? Would you agree that one of the essential and central elements to learning how to live a good life is to overcome the fear, the anxiety of death? Christian thinker Francis Schaeffer got at a very similar type of idea, arguing from the other way around. He says, in one sense, the most important day of your life is the day that you were born. Because if you don't have that day, there are no other days. And yet he immediately flips, and he says, however, it is also, in another sense, the least important day of your life, because it's only the beginning, and then it is past. After we are born, the important thing is the living the living of our lives in relationships and possibilities and capabilities. So I would say it seems fair to say that Barry is right, that both Christians and non-Christians are those who are seeking to live well, to live a good life. And part of that living well is to shed the fear of death. And this is an important question for us this morning. I bring all this up because we're in Matthew 24, which is dealing with many of these same issues. For a little recap, Chapter 23, Jesus had pronounced woes against Jerusalem and her leaders in particular. Woes against the hypocrites, he says over and over again. And as they're walking down from the city and heading up to to the Temple Mount, they're passing by the massive stones of the temple building and the disciples marvel, Jesus, would you look at these stones? They're marveling at the masonry. And yet Jesus says it's all coming down, an irreversible reality, which causes fear in them. And so they then respond to this looming future. How could the temple come down? By going to ask him, when is this going to happen? And when will you come in judgment? And what will be the signs of the end of the age? Well, we'll do a bit more review in our first point, but we'll walk through this text under three points. There might be a slide up there. But the first, uh, the points are this. It is verses 29 through 35, the parousia and this generation. Then we'll look at verses 36 through 44 the end of the age, and that day. And then finally, verses 45 to 51, the inspired application and the servants. So, one more time, look with me at verses 29 through 35, the parousia and this generation. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, 
and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The immediately after the tribulation of those days, and verse 29 causes us to say, well, what days? Well, I can't go back and re-preach last week, uh, but you can listen to it. And the argument last week was that verses 4 through 28 covered the entire period of time from Jesus' ascension till his return. This period of time is defined and outlined with three major characteristics. First, it is a time of false teaching. And it is a kind of false teaching that will lead many astray. And finally, it's a time of tribulation. There will be many tribulations. This long period of time with many false teachers and many false prophets. It'll be a long period of tribulation. But in the midst of that long period of tribulation, we saw verses 15 through 21, I argued, spoke about the great tribulation, about the fall of Jerusalem. And that was a specific event leading up to and culminating in 70 A.D., So our passage begins, the tribulation of those days. Notice, it doesn't say the great tribulation of those days. It's not talking about 15 through 21. It says the tribulation of those days, that longer period. Verse 9 is what he's picking up on. The tribulation shall characterize that time. So the end of this long period of time is when the sun will come back. Immediately after those days of false teaching, of people being led astray, of tribulation, Then Jesus will come with the clouds and his angels will gather his elect from the whole world and the trump will resound as the songs we sing. Now, as we mentioned last last week, there are three major camps of folks who wrestle with this passage. And there's some who put all or most of this in the past. And then there's another group that puts all or most of this in the future. And I'm arguing that it's, it's spread out over all, that it's dealing with more of these things, though it's really focusing there in those verses on 70 A.D., Well, there are some dear Christian brothers and sisters who will take this passage that we just read, 29 through 35, and they'll want to argue that because it says this generation, that this had to happen back then. Now, we can't engage with all of those arguments today, but uh, the difficulty with this text, with that view, there's many, but the main difficulties is that it takes the parts, the pieces, and it tries to draw conclusions. So it says, well, things like the sun being darkened and the moon and stars falling and clouds and the Son of Man on the clouds, and power, and sending angels, all of those individual pieces, if you take them apart, you can find places in Scripture where those definitions are used to talk about the fall of nations. My my response is that, unfortunately, that's just not the way he's using it here. And whenever you put them all together, they fit into this return of the second coming. Now, I'll deal with this a little bit more in a minute. But the same issue happens on the other side as well. Our friends who would argue, dear friends who would argue that this is all or mostly all in the future, they would say, you see, this generation has to be talking about either the Jewish nation or the generation alive when Jesus returns. Once again, there are many problems with this. Uh, One is that this is the 10th time that that, uh, Matthew's gospel has used generation. And it always means the people who are alive then. Furthermore, after Jesus had finished his woes in chapter 23, he had said, the judgment is coming on this generation. So notice what we're having here. 
The challenge is we have a claim that is happening in this generation, and yet we have a challenge of Jesus' return. And that's where the tension is. And that's why people struggle with this passage. They figure out where to put it. I'm going to phrase it like this. I would say, following uh, Don Carson and a number of others who have argued this way much, much more in depth, I can give you resources if you want them, is that the point is Jesus is saying his return can't happen until. In other words, saying certain things must happen before I come. So this is what he says here, that before summer, the fig tree will put out its shoots. It's just a sign that summer is coming. So before he returns, certain things have to happen. It doesn't say that they all have to have happened, meaning they have to be completed, but they have to have happened, which is to say that Jesus is saying, I can't come back until at least 70 AD. It's just so telling his disciples, because remember they asked him, when are these things going to happen? When is, when are you coming in judgment? And, and, And when is the end of the age? And he says, well, I'm definitely not coming back until after 70 AD, because these things have to have happened, not completed, but at least begun. And obviously 70 AD would be that time frame. So that's the way that I would put this together, that you have this long period of time put out between the ascension and the resurrection. In the midst, there is this great tribulation that is done and over with in 70 AD. And Jesus says, at the end of this long period of time, I will come back on the clouds. I will come back with my angels, with the trump, and all those themes together culminate in in talking about his return. But a couple quick points of just passing application. We're living in this time of tribulation. And that's both spiritual and physical. And this time of tribulation should really cause us to live a certain way. In particular, it should cause us to pray for the persecuted church. For those who are experiencing this age of tribulation in ways that we can't fathom. That we should pray for the many who are suffering, who are being put to death for the name of Jesus. They are those who are being threatened with and tempted to be led astray. That to deny is to be saved from the suffering and persecution. Or over general tribulation. Think of the the amount of deaths going on with the coronavirus. We should be praying for those things. For those global pandemics and sufferings as well. Because this is a time of tribulation. So, Jesus' prophecy came true. His words will not fail. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. And in 70 AD, his promise has happened. And his promise is still happening. It's still a time of false teaching. It's still a time of being led astray and of tribulation. And so a second quick point of application is, friends, I hope you take incredible comfort that God is unchanging, that he's a God who fulfills his word, that he is a God who none of his promises will ever fall flat. So that's the parousia. Next, look at the end of the age in that day, verses 36 through 44. The end of the age in that day. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
So in the flow of this discourse now, these verses have been giving us this tension felt by all believers. The tension that throughout the New Testament, Jesus is saying he's coming back and we're to live ready. That's going to be just the thrust of this whole passage. And yet there's this delay that just keeps seeming to happen. And we all live in the midst of that tension. The fig tree has budded. We live in these times of false teachers, but he's not back yet. So how do we navigate these things? Well, to fill out this picture of how we live until that day, we need to do some theological spade work. I've got to give you a couple categories because this, this term, that day, is a technical term. And so I need to put it in a larger setting. See, the Jews understood the age, this age is a time that was going to go. So the history passed, the age was going, and this age was going to stop on the day of the Lord. Go back and read in the prophets over and over and over again. The day of the Lord. And that would usher in the age to come. So that's the way they understood it. And when you go through and read this age language in Paul and Jesus, they always use the same way that this age refers to this temporal time. It's a time of, of change and very much of like what we saw, these false teachings and things. This age. But with Jesus and Paul, something amazing happens. Is that this age does not end on that day like we thought. But instead, the age to come has broken into time. And so Paul and Jesus repeatedly use the age to come to refer to this time of eternity, to this unchanging time, to, to a time of immortality. It's a time when the age to come is when all God's people will have the Holy Spirit. It's the, the time of the resurrection life, which we experience now. We are those spiritually resurrected, having been born again. We are those indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The age to come has broken in on this age. This has all sorts of fancy theological words. Uh, a couple of them are realized eschatology, inaugurated eschatology, or maybe the simplest one is the already and the not yet. We are already those who are living resurrected lives in that we are born again spiritually. We are already those living in the age of the spirit, tasting of immortality, but not yet. Not yet entirely. The age to come did not end or the age, this age did not end when the age to come began. The age to come broke into time. And that's what Jesus has to change their categories here. We are not yet experiencing the consummation of the age to come. Just the inauguration of the age to come. And so Jesus and Paul have identical force. Go through and read all the usages of this age and the age to come. You will see this pattern. And we saw this earlier in Matthew's gospel. I could multiply examples for you. But he says that through this age, or at the end of this age, the harvesters, the angels, the harvesters will come and they will separate the wicked from the righteous. In the next chapter 25, we're going to get three parables. And it's talking about the end of the age. And the end of the age always ends on that day, that hour, the day of the Lord, the last trumpet. There's a number of words there. So when we read here, all that work had to be done to say, when we read here, but concerning that day and hour, that's the final day. That's the final return. Go look at all of Jesus and Paul's usage. They're univocal. They speak with one voice. And that's what is being elaborated on in verse 40 and 41. That that day, when the age to come is consummated, when he returns, he returns in judgment. So verse 40 and 41, two men are in the field, one taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. That's not being taken in a secret rapture. That's being taken in judgment when the Lord returns. He comes back 
Why? Because Noah is the example. In the days of Noah, what was happening? Noah was busy about his work. He was doing his work. He was plodding along, living every day ready, doing what the Lord set before him. And when the flood came, nobody was ready. They were marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking. And this is why we get the two therefores. We get these conclusions drawn for us in the text. So look again at verse 42 and 44. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Once again, therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. So once again, God's word does things. What I mean is, he says, my word will never return to me void. Which is to say that when God's word goes out, it always accomplishes its means, its intended means. His word is always hardening or softening. His word is always judging or forgiving. And Jesus' words are intending to do something here in this text. He is doing things to his disciples, causing them to see that they are asking the wrong questions. That instead, the question is, how do we live today in this age to prepare for that day and the age to come? Stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. He's teaching the disciples to live ready lives, to see every day as a day to be busy about the Lord's work, just as Noah had done. Now, I would love to press on into more application, but we're going to take basically the most of the third point to, to suss out a couple key points of application, because that's what Jesus does. He's drawing application at this very final point here. So, we'll turn to our last point, the inspired application and the servants. We'll get 43 through 51 with me. Or 45, rather, through 51, excuse me. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to him, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Clearly talking about the end. The judgment as is going to take place throughout the rest of chapter 24, 5. In this whole section known as the Olivet Discourse. So, whether you're a Christian here or not today, here's why Matthew 24 is so important. It's talking about the end. It's talking about what we saw from Luke Ferry at the beginning. Are you ready for death? Are you ready for the irreversible? Are you ready for that day? Because we will all face that day. See, many people often fail to live today in light of the big questions of life. Is there meaning? Is there purpose? How do we know? Can we say something is right? Can we say something is wrong? We have a tendency to flit through life. We have a tendency to kind of ignore these things, to be numbed to these things. And partially it's because we live in a world where stuff is just coming at us so fast. We have a tendency to say, I'll just, I'll think on that later. I'm, I just, I don't have time for that right now. I'm sure it's important. But friends, Matthew is calling us to look, to live in this age and this day for that day and the age to come. 
That is exactly what he's writing about. The whole thrust of the passage is to cause us to live in light of the age to come. So let's get a couple examples. In his excellent book, Fool's Talk, Oz Guinness speaks about this very thing. This is a long quote, but listen here. Just before his execution under the Athenian Democrats, Socrates famously declared that the unexamined, unexamined life is not worth living. It is one of the most quoted classical sayings outside of the Bible. But it is followed less than it is quoted. And if Socrates is correct, it would mean that many people, even highly educated people, are leading lives that are not worth living. They simply have not thought enough or cared enough to think for themselves about the meaning of life. They have not examined such big questions as the nature of the universe, their own identity and purpose, a foundation for deciding about right and wrong, the prospects for humanity, which worldview makes the best sense of it all, and so on and so on. So friends, maybe you are here today and you haven't really been living an examined life. Matthew 24 is a clarion call. Pay attention. That day is coming. It cannot be avoided. It cannot be postponed. It will come right on time. Or maybe you have examined these things. A lot. But maybe that examination, that reality, is no longer shaping your lives in any practical day-to-day basis. Jesus' whole point in this discourse is to summarize so well by these servants who do not think about or consider their master's return. Well, they know he's coming back. They just don't live in light of it. They're living an unexamined life. And with Socrates, an unexamined life is really not worth living, at least in the end. So if the thrust of Matthew 24 is that Jesus is coming back, and on that day he comes back, there'll be no warning, there'll be no wake-up calls, then there will be no last-minute preparations, friends. There will be no last-minute trips to the confessional, as it were. There will be no take-backs, no do-overs, no mulligans. It will be the last day. And Jesus uses this very specific example to press this application into the disciples. But before we get to the specific application, or what I'm calling the inspired application, let's look at a derivative piece of application first. So on this idea of examining our lives, living today in light of then, what consumes you? What consumes your thoughts? What consumes your time? What consumes your emotional energy and wallet? Friends, those things that consume you have control over you, for good or for ill. So are the things which consume your thoughts and your emotional energy, are those things which magnify the Lord? Are those things which help build up the Lord's people? If not, more examination might be required. So let's drill down to even more practical for a moment on this this examining our lives. I imagine that some of you here today are consumed with many things, and particularly many types of media. In an election year, you might be consumed with political media. Uh, or maybe it's just social media of one kind or another. We could multiply examples of videos on YouTube, of this and that and the other thing. But any time I think on this topic of being consumed with media, I'm brought back to Neil Postman's prophetic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. It was first published in 1985, when radio and TV were the only things killing people or, or causing them to be amused to death. Cell phones, smartphones, tablets, computers, they weren't even a thought, a blip on the radar yet. And Postman wrote this about how television was destroying people's ability to think. Listen to this. The average length of a shot on network television is only 3.5 seconds. So that the eye never rests. 
There's always something new to see. American television is devoted entirely to supplying its audience with entertainment. And, of course, everybody knows that. But then he goes on. I am claiming here that TV has made entertainment itself the natural format for the representation of all experience. Entertainment is the supra-ideology of all discourse on television. No matter what is depicted or from what point of view, the overarching presumption is that it is there for our amusement. How much of our time spent on amusement? Which, to pick apart that word, to muse is to think. To amuse is to not think. It is to abdicate thinking. Postman goes on to give a chilling example. Listen to this. This one always shocks me. He talks about in the news in those days, the way they transitioned segments was this little phrase, and now this. Here's how it worked. He says, the phrase is a means of acknowledging the fact that the world, as mapped by the speeded up electronic media, has no order or meaning and is not to be taken seriously. There is no murder so brutal. There is no earthquake so devastating. There is no political blunder so costly, no ball score so tantalizing, or weather report so threatening that it cannot be erased from our minds by the newscaster saying, and now this. But friends, for us, we don't even listen to and now this. The thumb just moves. And now this. So the point to bring this all together is it, friends, are we amusing ourselves to death? To spiritual death? Are we sitting back and passively letting various forms of media shape us and in so doing cause us to be citizens of rival kingdoms with rival loves and rival worships? Perhaps maybe a more pointed visual for this would be to say this. If we saw a husband and a wife constantly saying, I love you, but they never spend any time together. Constantly saying, I love you, but they never serve one another. Constantly saying, oh, I love you so much, but they hardly even converse. Wouldn't we be right to say, are you sure you know what love means? Friends, we have been served and loved and cared for by the bridegroom who died for us. Do we love him? Does that work itself out? Are our lives able to be examined enough to acknowledge that just maybe, just maybe, we need to change some priorities. That's one thing that this text would bring to us. Are you living today ready for that day? Does your time, does your emotions, does your cares prove that out? So, I could go on and on with countless examples. But let me go to what I believe is the inspired application. That's a big claim, but I'm going to try to show you this from the text, which I believe this is what Jesus is drilling at, why he settles on this last little statement here. Is Remember the context. Jesus had just got done excoriating the Pharisees, ripping them to shreds for their what? For their failure to lead God's people. That's what started this off. That's in the background. And his judgment upon them, that's what causes all this domino effect of questions in Jesus' answer. And so Jesus comes and tells them this parable here, and then he'll tell the ones in the next chapter as well. But this one in particular, to say that instead of being like those Jewish leaders who want to lord it over, a constant theme throughout the Gospels, they're to be servants of servants. That's what makes sense of that weird little phrase in verse 45. Did you read that and ever just wonder why? 
Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? That's a position of authority. He's set over the household. But he gives to them, that is the other servants, their food at the proper time. The head servant is the servant of servants. The head servant is the waiter of the slaves. Why would Jesus use that illustration? The faithful and wise servants are those set over their master's house and what defines them is that they feed the rest of the master's slaves. Their leadership is displayed by their servanthood. So given this parable, and specifically it's given to the disciples, there seems to be a call, which will be played out in the rest of the New Testament, that God's people are those who acknowledge the upside-down kingdom. That the first will be last, and the last will be first. That the servant of servants is what we are called to be. They must not be like the Pharisees, imposturing and constantly seeking power and control, but rather they're to serve, to feed, to care for. Is this not what Jesus says to Peter when he restores him? Feed my sheep. Don't seek the power and control and posture. No, no, no. Feed my sheep. Far from being enthralled with the power and positions and with their cultural idols and far from being worried about their positions in the coming kingdom. Jesus' primary aim in this section is to get the disciples to see that living for then is to be a servant now. Living for that day means being a servant today. That's how we are prepared. Now, one of the best examples of this, to unpack this more practically, is found in Tim Keller's superb book, Counterfeit Gods. And he talks about this idol structure of power and control. And he says it's so prominent for Americans because of the American dream culture we live in. You see, the American dream causes us to believe that our relative success in one area of life actually means that we should seek to control every area of life. If we've had success over here, then we we should just continue seeking to have control. But Keller says pride makes us a predator, not a person. And then he illustrates it from C.S. Lewis. Quote, In C.S. Lewis's children's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the main characters is a young boy named Eustace Scrub. Eustace clearly has a lust for power, but he expressed it in the mean, petty ways that only a schoolboy could, in teasing, torturing animals, tattling, and ingratiating adult authorities. But one night, Eustace found an enormous pile of treasure in a cave, and he was elated, and he began to imagine the life of ease and power that he could now have. When he woke, however, to his horror, He had turned into a hideous dragon. And then quoting Lewis, he writes, Sleeping on a dragon's hoard, with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. So Keller continues, Because he had thought like a dragon, he had become a dragon. When we set our hearts on power, we become hardened predators. When we become, or we become like what we worship. But what if we don't have power? Well, Keller addresses this. He says, oftentimes this idol is put even more sharply when someone loses power because the normal response, he says, quote, to our sense of powerlessness is to deny that we have powerlessness. And instead it is to find people to dominate and control in order to live in that denial. Friends, it is those servants who abdicate their role of being a servant of servants that Jesus gives the hideous warning to that I will come back the day you do not expect. So in short, Matthew 24 is calling us to live this day in light of that day. It is calling us 
and asking us, friends, are you ready for the return of the king? Are you living today as a servant of servants? Are you living today with the examined life, realizing that what things are of true importance need to shape your time, your energies, your affections? Because you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you least expect it, as Jesus says. But here's the wonderful reality, friends. Is that those who repent, those who seek first his kingdom instead of their own will, they will grow in humble service to their fellow servants. But only if they have been changed by the reality that although Jesus had all power, that he has the name that is above every name, he did not come by that name by wielding power. He came by that name by giving up his power, by becoming a servant unto death, even death on a cross. He even relinquished his own will. Father, not my will, but yours be done. So you see, friends, we dare not seek to get ourselves out of trouble by utilizing our own resources, as Ferry says. Rather, we must be those who wholly lean on Jesus' name who live today longing for and in light of and in hopes of that day, resting in him alone. and doing so, we find that the reality of what he has done in giving up power is enough, that we can rest in him and follow him, because blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Would you pray with me?